1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Chris Salter about the new book, Sensing Machines How Sensors Shape Our Everyday Life. How are we tracked, surveilled, tantalized, and seduced by machines ranging from smartwatches and Roombas? To immersive art installations. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, uh, Galina.
1: All right. So, can you tell us what do you do?
2: So, uh, so I'm an artist. Um, I uh, I'm I'm trained in uh, theater and computer music, uh, as well as in uh, social science and humanities and economics and philosophy. Um, I that contributes to the kind of artistic projects I make, which are large-scale installations that uh, involve uh, human beings, uh, people, uh, machines, essentially light, sound, uh, images, uh, and they're all very much focused on um, opening up people's uh, multi-sensory experience uh, of the world. Uh, and I'm also really interested in how we navigate uh, and negotiate uh, the world with, with machines um I was uh, so I, and I'm also a professor for immersive arts at the Zurich University of the Arts, which I said just started on June 1st and I'm also the director of a new um, immersive arts space and immersion is a, a kind of a term that's coming up a lot now in in cultural contexts. and let's think about immersive technologies the things that kind of shift your understanding between uh, your your body uh, and the the transforming mediated environment that you're you're in, um, and the the lab I'm I'm running uh, uses these technologies, um, art let's say uh, virtual um, augmented reality, uh, let's say sensing systems, uh, some work uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, yeah, to look at kind of big questions through artistic and design lenses, so issues around climate uh on digital colonialism on uh, technical infrastructures uh and and how we yeah as i said negotiate the world with all these uh, all these new machines um so uh i'm uh and before that i was also a, a professor I'm, I'm now emeritus professor of computation arts at concordia university in montreal so and i ran a big uh, research network called hexagram uh there so um so I'm 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 working between uh, art design, uh, social science humanities uh, in in many capacities.
1: Were you always interested in this field?
2: Yeah, I mean the the field is is really broad in some ways. I mean I've always been interested uh, in in making things uh, and in in theater uh, uh, and in music. Um, and I was let's say uh, started. You know, started working in the theater. And, and then in, in in the 1990s, when I went to Stanford, I started working. I mean, I was always interested in electronics, computers uh, when, I was, when I was growing up. Uh, and when I went to Stanford, I studied at the Center for Computer uh, Research in Music and Acoustics um, with John Chowning, who was a composer who basically developed a technology a patent in FM synthesis, which basically went into the world's Big, biggest selling synthesizer the dX7 in the 1980s which I bought but I didn't know how to program so I had to wait eight years to go study with him to understand how to use it um and I, I was I began interested in how to integrate technology uh, into artistic context there and particularly in 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 performance which actually is a kind of background for 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 many of the books I've written in fact the first book I wrote uh, in 2010 that was published by MIT press is called entangled technology and the transformation of, of performance. You can still buy it on Google, you can also buy it on Amazon, you can also buy it in the bookstores, in art bookstores and things. And um, that book really looks at, you know, this this entanglement between humans and machines in the histories of, of, of the performing arts, of dance, theater, of scenography, but also in uh, in the visual arts uh, that also kind of use this term performance, you know. So a performance in the sense of something time-based that unfolds over time. And uh, unfolds in space uh, and involves like this encounter in in, in physical space. Uh, so so yeah. So I've always been interested in in fusing different disciplines together to to create uh, strong experiences uh, for people.
1: And in your career journey, did you have mentors that were really supportive of you?
2: Very much. In fact, um, I think my teachers uh, are were ex- essential to. Um, my uh, development both as an artist and as a scholar um, in in high school I mean these are kind of common stories as always you know but I I had a a drama teacher who unfortunately just passed away last year um, who threw at me Uh, I was starting to study directing and acting and um, and he was uh I remember he gave me a a copy of, uh, it was a class in directing, theater directing. And we had to, each of us, each of the class members had to report on a particular famous theater director. So he gave us the book called Directors on Directing, where these different directors, theater directors had written about their practice. And he gave me um, an essay by the German playwright and director Bertolt Brecht. uh, And uh, on the, the street scene in epic theater, I remember this in 1980. Two or 1983, and um, I could not make heads or tails of this. I had no idea what, what Brecht was talking about. And I remember coming to him, to David Patch, and saying, you know, what is this about? Like, I I, I can't understand this. And, and he said, well, you're smart, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so, um, and and ironically, I ended up studying in graduate school with one of Brecht's assistants, Carl Weber. Um, so my my mentors were incredibly important um, to both, as I said, both as uh, my mentors, both inside the university uh, and also um, professional artists who I work with outside of the university. Um, So uh, that's, I think one reason also why I'm within both uh, as an artist, I'm also uh, engaged in pedagogy because um, it's extremely important uh, for, for, for young people as they develop to have mentors who can you know, uh, bring you to bring you up to your full capacity, you know, and, and also uh, expose you to things that you never would ever have thought about or seen or heard. Um, so, uh, so uh, I, I really attribute to my, to many of my mentors, artists, as well as uh, teachers um yeah, I, I, an incredible um you know gratitude to 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 that.
1: And as a mentor yourself, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers or somebody who would be really interested in studying what you do what you do?
2: Yeah, I have a lot of those people that I'm contacted every day by people wanting to do PhDs with me. Um mm-hmm. I um I would say to them that, you know, um you have to always be curious, you have to remain open. You can't um fall into routine. Uh, you have to constantly push the borders of the discipline you're in uh, to other disciplines, um, which is why I think um, I'm really interested in the entanglement between the arts uh, and, and, and not only the natural sciences, but the social and the human sciences as well. Um, and the arts only live when they're, you know, um, uh, uh, re- reimagined and also reinvigorated. Uh, by other practices and other ways of experiencing the world. So I say to, to students, you know, don't, uh, don't get too comfortable.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your latest book is Sensing Machines, How Sensors Shape Our Everyday Life. So how did you come to writing this particular book?
2: So that's a, that's a, long, uh, there's a long answer to that, but I think it's an important one. Um, I mean, first of all, um, sensors are everywhere. There's right now estimated around 50 billion uh, sensors in the world, which is, um, you know, about seven times, six to seven times the world population. And they estimate in the next decade, there'll be around a trillion. This is incredible. to think there's a trillion electronic devices that are constantly out there kind of um, monitoring uh, the world that we're in, we're in. And, you know, I mean, a sensor is, is, uh, it sounds like a kind of complicated thing, but it's actually quite simple. It's basically a device that tries to understand this change of state of a, of a system. You know, let's say that it a, understands like the temperature in the room is getting, uh, changing, uh, moisture or, um, you know, um, my computer falls off the table and the sensor small thing called accelerometer, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, alerts to the fact that the acceleration of the machine is changing as it falls and it locks the hard drive so when it hits the ground the hard drive is not destroyed. So sensors are really just trying to understand changes in the environment um, in a maybe faster way than our brains can and, and then communicate that to turn it to machine readable information for for, for for machines for computers uh, particularly now um, Now so you know one, one reason why I wrote this book was, Um, I I started a couple of years ago um, thinking about um, how our lives are quantified by all these devices that we own, you know, Apple Watches, Fitbits, um, you know, you started reading every week there was an article in the New York Times about the Roomba vacuum cleaner suddenly making what's called a slam, uh, uh, basically a a, a computational map of your living room that probably sell to Whoever to idea um, or how you know Alexa and Amazon Echo is listening to us to identify keywords to in order to anticipate what we might buy so it start might might send us things before we even order them so this is what what Shoshana Zuboff calls kind of surveillance capitalism or knowing capitalism or data valence there's all these different terms that scholars use to talk about this kind of surveillance society of data you know um, and that led me to actually to the 19th century uh, because. First of all, as both an artist but also a, as someone interested in history, I'm not a historian by training, but but I'm I I'm a write historical work. It, it it dawned on me that a lot of these questions are not new; that are coming up. And you know, the problem with technology always is that every new technology reimagines history. They pretend it's never been there before, but in fact, that's that's not the case. Uh, there's always precedent uh, behind any technology that 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 emerges, and and years of human labor. Uh, uh, and, and so on. So I, I went back to the 19th century and started uh, reading uh, people like Hermann von Helmholtz, uh, Gustav Fechner, uh, Wilhelm Wundt, uh, the, basically the inventors of contemporary, um, let's say, sensory science or, or, or essentially physiology. You know? They were all trying to understand, of course, how the human senses, how the human, physio- human physiology works. And um, they started to make quantified models. They basically tried to, Gustav Fechner in particular, who was a very extremely interesting 19th century uh, physicist. He brought physics to Germany, but he was trained in medicine. Then he moved into natural philosophy and he was interested in quantifying the arts. And one of these strange kinds of polymaths of the 19th century. Um, scientists now are trained in very narrow things. And these scientists were like studying all sorts of things, you know, across mm-hmm. disciplines. And so what was very interesting is um, Fechner had uh, tried to understand the relationship between what he called uh, the world external to our sense perception and the internal world of our brain processes. And in in, in a very strange set of circumstances, which I don't have time to go into, he came up with a discipline called psychophysics. And psychophysics literally is the the, the theory of the relations between body and mind. This is Fechner's definition. Now, psychophysics basically tried to, and still does, uh, measure sense perception. And it did it by various techniques. Uh, the most famous, called the just noticeable difference. It, you know, our 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 perception, our different senses are tuned to different sensory modalities. Hearing is tied, of course, to to waves in the environment that our ears pick up as as sound. Um, our eyes, of course, also see uh, wavelengths. Um, our skin feels mechanical uh, effects, um, which is what we call touch. All these things, and they all have different thresholds of perception. So, for instance. This just noticeable difference idea is that like the the most, what is the the amount of intensity of a change of stimuli you need in order to notice a difference sensorily? And Fechner modeled this with this idea of this threshold of perception. Now, you know, this sounds like very interesting history of science, but, you know, what does this have to do with contemporary life? Well... During the pandemic, as I was uh, doing research uh, and writing actually the first chapter of the book, which is actually on Fechner and the relationship between Fechner and virtual reality, um, which you said, what is that about? Mm. Um, I discovered, in fact, looking at the job descriptions on the pages of Facebook reality labs now called meta labs, um, that they were uh, asking for, there were lots and lots of jobs in Kind of weird disciplines like applied perception science or um i think another one was about trying to understand the the bottleneck between perception and action and all of these jobs demanded expertise in psychophysics now this is really interesting because how is it that a 19th century philosopher who had no access to electronics or computers um, came up with a model of quantifying sense perception that we actually find in the very technologies that we buy uh, today on, on Amazon. So for instance, if, if anyone out there owns an Apple Watch, the small LED, which is called a PPG sensor, a sensor, a, uh, photo photoplasmography sensor. That sensor, even though of course it's an LED, which is a recent technology, that sensor was developed in the mid-19th century by an Italian named Angelo Mosso, who had, of course, was int- it was called plasmody, plasmography sensor, which is basically to measure the change of blood pressure. So, you know, this is why history is so super important in relationship to contemporary technology, because in fact, the the roots of of, of our quantified existence are very deeply uh, in these historical contexts. So nothing is always new under the sun. The, the other thing I'll say is that during the pandemic, um, I started reading a lot of, because I was finishing the book during, during uh, the first wave of COVID in, in 2019, 2020. What I found was that in fact, the sensors were all working overtime while humans were all isolated in their houses. Uh, the sensors were basically monitoring everything. So for instance, and, and they were monitoring things in the environment. Uh, around the earth um, that were directly, let's say, correlated to the pandemic. Okay, So here's a good example. There was a researcher in in the UK at uh, Imperial College who basically detected that weather forecasting systems were being radically thrown off during the pandemic. Now, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because Uh, there's an entire network of sensors that are installed on commercial airlines that are flying around the world. Each plane generates about uh, 700,000 samples of data each day um, that give us a way of detecting the weather uh, around the atmosphere. Uh, at the same time, um, I started noticing that, in fact, there were, there were studies of basically the fact that the oceans were getting quieter. Um, it was it was a kind of sudden. They call it the Anthropause now, or this acoustic Anthropause, because of course the hydrophones, these sensors that you know work under the water in terms of measuring acoustic uh, waves, were not very active, and that's because suddenly there were less there was less um, shipping traffic. So the, 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 the whales and were much more common than they usually are. So suddenly all of these strange things during the pandemic uh, were taking place um, mm-hmm. that had to do with these sensors monitoring the world. They put sensors also on animals to see what they were, how their migration was changing based on the fact that cities were get, be emptying out. Um, many, many uh, projects in bioterrorism um, reorganized re-or- themselves to try to detect COVID viruses with the same biosensing technologies. So the sensors basically in the world became somehow more live than than us and trapped in our homes, you know. Mm -hmm. So and it's the same of course with all the machine learning AI systems running as well. So you know, so this, this, this conflation of events, I think are very, very interesting because they show that this is not just some academic thing. These things are everywhere. They're ubiquitous in our environment. They're ubiquitous in our lives. And um, they're shaping very much how we um, act and uh, how we behave, how we uh, communicate, uh, how we organize things, how we perceive the world uh, in, in radical, uh, radically different ways. The last thing I would just say is um, that there's a personal reason to to why I came to write this book. I've worked as an artist with sensing technologies for about 20 years. And the first time I encountered a sensor as a young artist uh, was in the weirdest place, which was in, and this sounds quite strange, in a rehearsal studio of a ballet company in Frankfurt, Germany. Now, why would a sensor end up in a ballet rehearsal studio? Well, Um, I was working at the Ballet Frankfurt, um, Frankfurt Ballet, uh, with this very famous American choreographer who ran it, William Forsythe. And um, Forsythe at the time was really interested in interactive technologies. He wanted to figure out ways that dancers on stage could influence sound or image, and then there would be this feedback between them. And what was interesting is there was a computer musician um, that was working on um, the, uh, this kind of live signal processing of the audio named Joel Ryan, old friend who's based in, um, in Amsterdam. And he's an expert at basically using sensors and signal processing uh, in musical contexts. So we were working and Joel had this, he worked at a place called STIME, Studio for Electro Instrumental Music in, uh, in Amsterdam that built basically performance technologies for artists. To use and what was interesting is he brought with him a sensor he brought with him a thing that was in a big heavy box that was connected with a long heavy cable and then wrapped in a bunch of plastic Um, and that sensor was an accelerometer and if people don't know what an accelerometer is it's basically the device that measures acceleration which is in your cell phone and why would but why would a dance studio have this accelerometer well we were interested in trying to create an interaction between one of the dancers um, who was kind of playing a kind of theatrical role in, in the piece, she was actually enacting, acting out the myth of Persephone, you know, when Persephone is in Greek mythology is kidnapped by by Hades and taken away to, to, to hell uh, because of a deal that gets broken between uh, Uh, Zeus, you know, the the main god and and Hades. So anyway, what happened is that this this dancer was playing this role and wanted to attach the sensor, we wanted to attach the sensor to this dancer's body. So as she moved, as she accelerated her changing her movement, the light in the room would change, the sound would change, it would be kind of this kind of crazy relationship between this moving body, this dervish of a of a performer and the, the the environment around her. Now we never did this because of course this sensor like came out of the box and like you know is like not very stable and you know but but we were kind of obsessed by this idea that a a, a technical device could become like a kind of spirit you know and that could could drive suddenly the environment and this is like a huge stage the ballet frankfurt has this massive you know the city's theater of frankfurt where huge lights and sound fifty thousand watts of sound that this could that this motion from a human body could orchestrate this technical environment and make this like primal experience happen so that's my entrance into why writing this book because these things are everywhere but they're not just surveilling us, we're also needing them. So there's this feedback loop going on between these technologies that are everywhere, ubiquitous and multiplying, and our own human perception, uh, our own human sense perception, and our our human movement, and our human actions in the world. Um, And that's why this book is, I think, very important. um, Because first of all, sensing is everywhere, and and people kind of think it's mystifying and that these things have actually more intelligence than they do. I mean, actually a sensor has very little intelligence, has very little knowledge of anything. It just knows changes of state. It needs some kind of software, it needs a computer attached to it to, d- to detect that, to understand that data, to, to understand the scales of that data, to understand where interesting things called features happen in that data to tell us something about the world.
1: Oh, truly fascinating. Oh my gosh, I wish I could have watched that performance of that artist. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, this performance was, I and mean, it was actually very interesting too, because um, it, this was a ballet called Eidos Telos, and this was the, as I said, the City uh, Ballet Company or Dance Company of Frankfurt, Germany, and, and for ten years Forsyth's work was very, very important around the world. Um, but this was a, a period in the in the company where um, his his wife had just passed away, actually, who was one of the key dancers. So it was a very, you know, a very um, a very traumatic period of time, and this ballet is about essentially combining a very strange mix of things, combining um, the story of Persephone, uh, it's a kind of story about, uh, the ballet is about grief, um, at the same time as we were looking at complex systems theory, we were looking at cellular automata, we were looking at self-organization, which of course is uh, scientific ideas in biology now or in chemistry and artificial life, and trying to understand really what are the lines between order and disorder? Are those perceptual, are those, are those historical, are those social, are those cultural, um, and, and how those work. And couched within that ballet was also this interest in, as I said, uh, this creating of, a, of an interactive, a responsive environment between human performers and these machines.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda.
2: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: So you've given us uh, quite a nice uh, sort of feel of what is a sensor. So what kind of types of sensors are there?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's that's a very good question. And um, there's literally hundreds of types. So let's just take, for instance, the human senses as a, as a kind of comparison. So, um, we have basically, uh, chemical senses, uh, smell and taste are the key ones. We have mechanical senses, sound, because sound is, is, is mechanical. It comes in waves, but it actually, you know, when it hits the ear, it, the ear is a mechanical system. Uh, touch, as I said earlier, is a mechanical system as well. And then we have um, we have electrical, uh, uh, you know, electro uh, 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 wave based uh, te- uh, um, sensing. So. Uh, so there are sensors for everything: for the detection of molecules changing in the atmosphere, for the detection of light, for the detection of um, uh, pressure, for the detection of stretching things, for the detection of motion, for the detection of acceleration, for the detection of velocity, for the detection of. So I keep saying detection because they're here. These things are called detectors. You know, they're trying to detect things out. Uh, you know, as I said, in the world. Um, so. If you want to think about kind of common sensors, um, of course, the most common sensor is the thermometer that most people have in their house. They probably have a digital thermometer now. I grew up, of course, with a thermometer that had mercury in it. Mm. Um, a pulse detector, you know, is another, a heart monitor, for instance, is a very standard medical device that most people are carrying around on their wrists right now, basically turning them into kind of psychology laboratories. Um, Another example of, 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 as I said earlier, is the accelerometer. Now, the accelerometer is super interesting because most of us didn't know what a accelerometer was about 20 years ago. Now, we might not know what it is, but we know, oh, that's that device in your phone that when you turn the phone, um, the image changes from portrait to landscape. Uh, Or that's the thing that enables your phone to do step counting, uh, you know, to basically measure how many steps you take it each day. Now, of course, that's not just raw data. It has to be filtered through algorithms. It has to be has to be feature detected and all these kinds of things that we do in computer science. However, um, the really interesting thing is the accelerometer uh, dates back to the end of the 19th century. Uh, it was used, for instance, on ships to try to measure um, vibration on pendulums. Uh, it was used uh, to measure vibrations on structural membranes, i.e., like buildings uh, on bridges. Um, because of course, these are all mechanical systems. If you have vibration that's too intense on those systems, uh, you have the potential for those systems to break, uh, which is actually kind of resonance that builds up in those systems. And this happens, of course, uh, there was a famous case in in the UK at the Millennium Bridge that was built uh, right around the the turn of the the millennium uh, by Norman Foster. This bridge was like the pride of of London. Uh, They had to basically close it after one day because people were walking on it and causing sympathetic vibrations that caused the entire bridge to start moving um, and eventually could break. And in fact, they had to measure all that vibration with accelerometers. So so the accelerometer goes from basically being this physics uh, device, to essentially, in the 1980s, ending up in a really strange place, um, but where they really took off, which is essentially detecting crashes in cars and triggering airbags. Now, how does an accelerometer trigger an airbag? Well, you know, acceleration is essentially the rate of change of, of velocity. Um, when you slam on the brakes, you go to, you know, you have deceleration. If you speed up. You also have acceleration if a car hits you, you have acceleration. In fact, the amount of gravity you measure acceleration in gravity gs as they're called them you know um, when a car hits another car, the amount of gravity that's produced is enormous. It can crush a human being in just instant instantaneously. so these accelerometers were um placed in cars and the, the reason they were placed in cars is because a certain type of manufacturing technology that emerged in the end of the 1970s uh, and 1980s which enabled essentially chips to be put into everything from your toaster to your washing machine to your phone to your computer which is called MEMS, Micro electron, Electric Mechanical Systems, these allowed these uh, chips to shrink So suddenly these big, big devices that used to be like the size of chairs got shrunk down to the size of essentially business cards and postage stamps. And so they could be implemented in cars um, to essentially do this kind of detection. So so that's another really interesting example. The other thing is, is that we all think that, you know, um, let's say... uh, um, uh, Apple uh, or uh, and, uh, you know, Google phones or Android phones or whatever, which all have accelerometers in them to measure these things were, were developed by, you know, were invented by Google or, or by, by Apple. Well, what's interesting is that in fact, the first personal communication device uh, that has a, an accelerometer, or had an accelerometer in it, was actually a thing called a Simputer developed in India. And um, it wasn't a phone, but what it was was it was a a kind of like early you know um, uh, notepad you know d- digital notepad um, and the idea was that uh, this was for actually designed for illiterate farmers um, that these devices could be bought by by the village collectively and that if different people could essentially so rent them out for very cheap money. They were connected to the internet. They had text-to-speech that, because so, so, and the reason they put an accelerometer in this device is because they wanted an intuitive so-called natural interface. So when basically illiterate um, uh, farmers needed to do something, they turn their phone, this image might change or things would adjust. So this is in the early 2000s, in fact, uh, and, and it's, it's totally fascinating because again, people think, ah, oh, it all has to do with, you know, Silicon Valley. Uh, but in fact, you know, as I said, this in this Indian entrepreneurs with this imputer, oh. uh, this simple, simple computer, that's why it was called that, uh, were the first to really work with accelerometers in a kind of communication device and really set this kind of precedent, you know, for, for using these, these technologies. Um, but you know, now, um, because of MEMS, because of nanomanufacturing, um, sensors, are are really there are hundreds of sensors in your house if you want to if you just go around think about this your coffee maker has a sensor your toaster has a sensor your television has a sensor the standard car now has around 200 sensors and of course when they break the car doesn't work anymore which is really quite ironic um there are sensors in your phone there are sensors in in basically any electronic device you have in your house or in your car or in your office or in your studio or whatever. So now here's another interesting example where sensors have been used and they've been using game controllers. Everyone probably remembers the Nintendo Wii controller. This came out in 2004. Uh, It also has an accelerometer in it. And, And what's interesting about that game controller is Nintendo had actually been uh, in Japan had installing accelerometers in game controllers much earlier um, because when people would play games where they would tilt like a game boy they wanted to adjust the game and sensing actually in game controllers goes back to the 1980s um these IR sensors to like they had this kind of wacky thing called uh, uh, act, act activision um which is basically like a octagonal thing with these IR sensors that would point upwards and then you'd stand in the middle of it and play the game by making karate moves. And the sensors would be triggered and supposedly drive the interface that never works. Of course. Then they had the Mattel power glove, which had, um, you know, also very sophisticated sensors that actually had conductive ink in it. So when you bent your finger, the ink changed its resistance and would change the game that Mattel thought they were going to change the world. That only sold a hundred thousand, copies and then basically went out of style. So but but there's this long history of game controllers, you know, and what, what's interesting is those game controllers, as the accelerometer, for instance, was integrated into the, the Wii controller, suddenly people felt they became part of the game. They didn't feel like they were somehow outside and watching a screen. They felt like their own body was inside the game. And and that's really interesting because of course many people know that there were lots of accidents with these Wii controllers, people were so excited and moving their body because they can then, you know, by by acceleration, you know, which is like rapid changes of velocity with your body, you could alter, you know, you could control characters and you could control things in the game. Well, people would throw these things into their televisions hmm. through their windows. Uh, there was a, a number of uh, uh, a, of uh, papers from the American Medical Association uh, journal that talked about lacerations and, and broken Gosh. bones from from this from these n- Nintendo Wii controllers you know and then at in 2010 uh, Microsoft came out with the Kinect you know which is a camera based ir camera based sensor system that was really different than that uh game controller um the the uh, the Wii controller because the Kinect because it uses uh, a camera and not an accelerometer. The camera needs to see something about the environment in front of it. And in fact, um, Microsoft at the time with its deep pockets and wanting to move into game design with with the Xbox and and all, they actually activated their machine learning division to work with the game uh, division, the Xbox division to essentially try to use machine learning. And this is in 2010 before most People had never even heard of AI, except for maybe 30 or 40,000 scientists in the world. Um, What they did was they sent camera crews around to different places around the world and asked people to basically make a bunch of moves in a game that didn't exist. And so they recorded these moves, and then they essentially trained um, deep learning, uh, deep, you know, deep, deep neural networks with many layers to essentially understand, um, uh, to connect the dots and try to identify, like, when these people are moving, like, their poses, essentially. And then they stored all that in memory so that when you start playing in front of the Microsoft Connect, the system tries to identify, kind of, like, interpolate between your movement and what's in the what's in the memory, you know, what's been learned already, and then essentially use that to control the game. The interesting thing is between that and the Nintendo Wii controller, you have not only two different types of technology, you actually have two, in my mind, you have two different ways of looking at the world. Because the first one with the Nintendo Wii controller is based on the fact that there's a physical world where we, which we interact with, with our bodies. Right. Uh-huh. And and but we hold something. So the controller becomes a kind of extension of us. You know, this fits very much with someone like Marshall McLuhan said that essentially media are extensions of the senses. You know. So basically, as you move, this thing becomes part of you. Now, Microsoft said that you don't want to have a controller. You know, it should be transparent. You should be able to move the way you want. But the irony is that. The Kinect needs to know something about the world that the player is in, what the, what the room looks like. It has a very bounded area that it can look at. and it has a depth camera, so it's sophisticated looking at depth of field, but it can't look beyond that. So it already has an understanding in the system of what a body is. Whereas the accelerometer just understands that when, it, when, when, when it's hit, when it encounters the physics of the world, it acts you know so this is like a really different way of thinking about like let's say sensing in a relationship to human behavior because one thing assumes a certain understanding of the human as pixels right and the other understands the sense of the human as a as, as as a physical force embodied physical force in the world so it's 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 not just the technology it's the fact that all of these technologies invoke really different cultural ways of understanding of us understanding ourselves and us understanding how we are reflected in these these um, these uh, systems we build.
1: So, staying with the games a little bit, um, is the haptic feedback technology new, a new thing? Because uh, to me, haptic feedback is when sensor is telling you something. You know, it's like <laughs> other way yeah, around. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, first first of all, just to, to just to not not to not to correct you, but I mean, the thing is haptics. So this is an interesting. Uh, confusion we always have so sensing basically detects the change right so it it learns something about it it takes energy out of the environment and then transduces it into electrical pulses um haptics are motors essentially so haptics are effectors they affect the environment they add energy into the environment so the combination of sensing and effectors is essentially how robots work right a robot needs to sense something about the environment and then act on it so the act, and acting means moving its motors. So haptics is actually a technology that also goes way back um, to the 19th century. Um, Let's say mechanized haptics starts in the 1950s and 1940s. In fact, there's a friend of mine, David Parisi, who wrote a book on the history of haptic technologies, um, archaeologies of touch, and, and, and so, you know, haptics also, in fact, Norbert Wiener, the inventor of, of cybernetics, was actually designing a haptic glove in the 1960s, 1950s, um, in which basically uh, you could um, get haptic feedback from this glove by touching things. So, you know, haptics is, is really interesting because... Of course, the skin is a sensor itself. You know, the dermal, the the, the the dermal layer, which is of course the, the surface layer of the skin, um, has a number of different sensors in it. And of course, as you go deeper in the skin, you have more and more sensors, and you have different sensors that measure different levels of intensity and different mechanical, uh, you know, uh, uh, measurements. So, so haptics are are interesting because they don't sense; they affect you know in, the, in in that way and so in the game controllers force feedback is a you know is also a technology which has been around since the 1960s in fact force feedback comes from modeling uh, research on uh, the lunar landing uh, because they were worried with astronauts of having to pre- how much pressure that would uh, they would encounter you know um, in in space in fact that's where accelerometers there was accelerometer on Apollo 11 um, there were accelerometers, you know, in planes flying and everything. So, so haptic haptics are are are, are more about, let's say, creating artificial senses of touch, um, and then sensors are about trying to measure, you know, trigger them in some ways. I wanted to say though something about when you were asking earlier about sensors, the different kinds of contexts of sensors. Of course, the other sensor context which. Most people probably have no idea about, because no? the book the book is very much about like quotidian things, you know, like everyday life, you know, and, and it's written different. It's it's written in very re- readable style. It's not an academic book, even though there's a lot of historical and there's a lot of research in it. But there's a chapter on the arts, and what's really interesting is that um, I start talking about a, a, a group out of Japan called Team Lab. They're in every museum now, all over the place. Um, they make these uh, uh, immersive environments um, that can are are constructed of like thousands of projections and 600 computers all networked together and 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 light and and sound and so you feel completely absorbed in these artificial natures that they they're trying to produce now there, these environments are filled with cameras and sensors everywhere there's hundreds and hundreds of sensors um why are those sensors there well they're trying to get some understanding of what the visitors are doing in that environment to affect how that environment behaves. Now, this sounds really new, right? Um, but again, as, as everything, it kind of goes back, even in the arts. In fact, what's interesting is in the 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 first uh, exposition, uh, exhibition of Surrealism in the 30s that Duchamp and Paris curated, he actually wanted to attach what he called magic eyes, which are essentially were photo cells, mm. um, to uh, lights that would take the light out on the paintings when people got close to them. So as they tried to look at the painting, the the light would go out and they couldn't see it. This was Duchamp's critique of retinal art because he thought the arts were only about the retina and not about other other things. Um, In the 1960s, uh, Robert Rauschenberg, uh, of course, very famous American painter, uh, who's seen as a visual artist, not as a so-called media artist using technology. Rauschenberg actually is one of the founders of art uh, art EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology, which were basically engineers uh, and artists founded by Billy Kluver, who was an engineer at Bell Labs. And Rauschenberg was interested in what he called reactive environments. He wanted to create spaces that would react in, in fairly limited ways um, between the perception of the viewer and the material of the installation. So he created a beautiful piece called Soundings, which was like a huge, thirty-six meter long kind of glass box with silkscreen images of chairs in different configurations on many layers of glass, and then he had lights inside that, and he had microphones, and so if people shouted, these lights would turn on and off, and you'd suddenly see these layers of these chairs appear, and you'd also see yourself in in those things. So, and then just to to finish this, um, did you know? So visual artists were really interested in creating new relationships between the environment and and us. It's what open back echo called the open work you know now and then in the 1960s there was another project that never got realized but it's very interesting it's called the fun palace and it was a project designed by Joan littlewood who was a marxist um a radical leftist uh theater director working class theater director in the, in, in london very 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 famous in the 1950s 1960s um and then she worked with the architect named cedric price And then they also worked with a man named Gordon Pask. And Gordon Pask was a psychologist who was working in the field of cybernetics. He was interested in feedback systems. And so they wanted to propose something called the Fun Palace. And this Fun Palace, which would be basically, they called it a university of the streets, would be a huge, massive city scale um, installation, architectural space that would transform. The walls would move, there would be steam, the, the screens would fly in and out. It would be basically an environment, they say, that would change all the time. They would say that it would never be the same thing twice. And Gordon Pask um, wanted to essentially use sensing technologies to, and, and essentially at the time, decision theory, uh, game theory, and various uh, kinds of, um, let's say, you know optimization, uh, mathematical optimization techniques, to essentially, monitor the people in this space and to transform these people um, to understand their behavior and to adjust the, the environment accordingly doesn't this sound familiar um and in fact what's so interesting is that Joan jo little was interviewed uh in the 1960s uh and she said that this would be a kind of a taste a taste of the pleasures of 1984. And what's really interesting is that you think, well, this is about social control. You know, this is totally about like try because because past said he wanted changed people to go through this, that they would come in and they would come out as changed people, you know, in this in this fun palace. And the name is, of course, very interesting. So you have on the one hand Team Lab with all its sensors and and its giant installations in Macau and casinos and permanent installation in Japan that were attended in, in 2016 by or 20, 20 uh, I was there like 2019, 2018 by 2.5 million people. Um, and then you have the fun palace, which was never realized, but somehow had another vision basically of the relationship between sensing, affecting decision-making and altering the environment. Um, and, and, and so you have this really interesting ideas, like are sensors there to monitor and control us. Are they there to open up our perception? Because they're tied then to other things, they can know something—know in a very limited sense. Let's say, change state, reduce uncertainty in the environment. Um, you know, and and then those things are creating these kind of crazy experiences. You know, so it, it's really interesting to think about a technology like, like a sensor that goes from the most quotidian de- context of like checking to see if your toast is brown enough to being installed in enormous physical spaces to kind of transform one's understanding of the self um, that this is is the same technologies that are of course used in very different contexts.
1: So staying with the art theme then, is it some kind of predecessor of one of those uh, sort of data sculptures or immersive um, uh, sort of visual uh, Representations yeah, yeah. of for uh, what you do you know when you have screens on the floor and you stand and it reacts to you
2: yeah of course in fact what you just described um uh, this idea of like you have screens or you, you move and you walk on pressure sensors and the environment changes, that comes already in the 1960s, 1970s uh, by a computer scientist named Myron Kruger, who built what he called responsive environments. Um, so So yeah, I mean, the, the, these, the, the precedents are there, you know, of course. The processing is faster. The fact that we can run um, sophisticated uh, computational models uh, to process more and more data uh, is different. But the but the but the foundational ideas uh, are are similar. The big change, of course, is the fact that. Um, many of these projects operate within the global spectacle of event capitalism you know Mm uh you know or the so-called experience economy as the harvard researchers who wrote that book in the 1990s uh, call it uh in which basically spectacle uh overwhelming the senses uh so one doesn't have any time for critical reflection on what these things are doing Uh, this is the strategy and you find now immersion uh emer- moving even out of the art world into like, you know, let's say, like, you know, go into Van Gogh or go into Picasso or these these kind of horrible like, you know, experience spaces in which you can be immersed inside, you know, a Van Gogh painting or, you know, so um which is which is essentially again event event capitalism. So um so you you, you find you find very much this acceleration of scale uh and uh and 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 need to occupy uh, the senses through the sensors <laughs> to such a degree um, that we don't have time to, to try to stand back and go, why is all this there? You know? why, why do we need these sensors? In fact, in team lab, it's interesting because in my book, I basically say, you know, there's thousands of sensors in these installations, but they might overwhelm our more fragile human senses who might not be able to take in, because the sensors can take in endless amounts of data and process it, much faster than 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 we can, even though the, of course the human brain is very very fast because it's parallel processor, uh, um, but it's relatively slow in computation compared to you know um, computers. But of course computers are slow because they're predominantly serial processing based. So you know the brain and the computer are not the same thing, um, but we always can't go back and comparing them. So in terms of these sensors, like let's take our human senses and then the intelligence of the brain and the body that process all that data, um, we, we only can do so much before we are saturated. you know. But these artificial systems can just keep taking in data and constantly process it and keep producing uh, results. Um, but we're the ones who are the ones um, that these things are meant for. And our, our own uh, sensing ability is uh, limited in terms of how much we can take uh, and how much we can process and how much we can, um, you know, uh, tolerate in that sense.
1: So apart from this uh, sort of hijacking of senses for overstimulation capitalism, or however <laughs> you put it, so what are other ways that we should be mindful of that sensors can be sort of misused?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things I tried to do in the book is point out that it's, it's simply, it's, it's too easy to say that, you know, technology is bad, and it, you know, and uh, it's dehumanizing us. Um, it's a much more uh, complex, uh, nuanced argument. And it's very specific to cases to particular uh, historical, historical periods, and so on. Um, but I think one of the important things to understand is that even though these sensors are everywhere, it doesn't mean we need them. So we, we make deals with these companies. When we buy a Amazon Echo, when we buy a smartphone, we are buying and we load onto those devices, we load onto the smartphone, Facebook or Instagram or whatever. We're, we're making a deal with those companies that we will basically give them our data. You know, And without the sensing technologies, um, these companies would know us, know anything about us, right? Whether it's key clicks, whether it's how we hold, how fast we hold the phone, because they can, they can monitor that, or of course, um, cameras or voice or, or what have you. So it's important to realize that we are, um, we are not slaves to these technologies, even though there's an assumption that we need them you know so people complain oh the amazon ring is surveilling you know taking pictures and sending them to amazon well turn it off <laughs> you know if you don't you know the amazon echo you don't need alexa in your house yes it might take a few minutes to go outside and Use your human senses to measure the weather, but maybe you know that data stays inside you and not uh, sent over to Amazon servers to be analyzed by NLP uh, uh, algorithms. You know, so I think the important thing is to realize is that we don't need all these tools. We don't need all these sensors. Um, industry needs them because they want to be, they want us to be more and more efficient, and they want their products to be more efficient so we buy more of them. Um, so I, I think. I think it's really important to understand that uh, there, is, um, there is the possibility of resisting all of these things, but it does mean you know, maybe um, shifting out of this uh, efficiency environment that, we, that, we, that we're, we're, we're part of. The, the, other, the other thing I would say is that it's really important, we've talked about data literacy now, um, how to read data, how to understand what data is. First of all, data is human produced. It's not produced by machines. Um, humans produce data right? And then, which are essentially, what is data, essentially numbers, you know, to machines. Um, And even though we think this is all new, Sir Francis Galton, in the end of the 19th century, one of the inventors of regression analysis, which is the core tool, and one of the core core tools in supervised machine learning, uh, he was also, of course, a proponent of eugenics, um, Dalton even, suge- Dalton even suggested, uh, that people show up in London every year and be measured. And so they could build a database of like different heights of people, you know, so they could study like how hereditarily they changed over time. So this gathering of data is again, uh, is nothing new, but what's important to, to think about is like data literacy and sensing literacy to understand, okay, this is how these technologies kind of work. Um, they actually Aren't as smart as we think they are. They need a vast amount of human labor behind them, and they need a lot of, uh, let's say, mathematical um, finesse to actually understand anything about what they're sensing, um, and 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 to demystify them somewhat, you know. And so I think my book and other 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 projects, uh, you know, try try to do this. They try to pull the rug out from under the fact that these technologies are not all magic, as Arthur C. Clarke once claimed, you know, that they, they, they actually are, are, you know, artificial systems that have been d- designed for really specific purposes. So I think the way to escape this kind of data valence is partly to learn more, to be more uh, 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 vigilant and more aware of how these systems work and what they do and what they don't do.
1: Hmm, That's such an excellent point that sensors do actually require somebody on the other side interpreting what exactly sensor is sensing, isn't it?
2: Exactly, and of course, it may, it might be a it might be a set of instructions from a computer, but someone's written that set of instructions. Some human has gone. Okay, um, if I want to monitor this environmental data over the next twenty four hours, and I know that there's going to be spikes in air quality between rush hour and this hour, and then later in the day it's going to be kind of calm, then I have to have an algorithm that detects when those changes happen and when other changes happen, not to do anything. So. Some human being uh, who has the mathematical and scientific training and knowledge has to essentially be the interpreter uh, for what these devices do. And of course, that interpreter writes something in code and it's basically, you know, running on a machine, but the machine hasn't written the algorithm, the human has written the algorithm. So... We're always trying to think about, and this is one thing the book covers a lot is like, what is the difference between human sensing and, 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 and machine sensing, you know, because for instance, there are arguments that we see the world as features, you know, we see the worlds, but do we really see the world as pixels is that, you know, there's, of course, debates in vision science about this. But, um, if we take the world as pixels, then we detect features and pull out those features, and then we can con- reconstruct the environment. If we don't see, if we see the world more densely, if we see the world as a complex, you know, ever-changing dynamical system, that's another kind of way of looking at the world. You know, so these scientific concepts or these like technological concepts become also metaphors for, ways of understanding um, our being. So yeah, it's, it's, I think, extremely important to know that there's always humans behind these systems, no matter how automated we think they are. um, The systems don't arise out of uh, nowhere and uh, they have deep historical um, cultural uh, attachments even though we might claim them as simply as, you know, technologies that are neutral and a cultural.
1: So what do you see on the horizon for sensors? I know it's a very broad <laughs> question, but. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, there'll be more of them. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be more and more of them and they and the machines will get faster and faster. Uh, my friend Takashi Ikigami, who's a physicist in Tokyo, Uh, working on for 25 years on the development of artificial life. He was just here in Zurich a few weeks ago and we were talking uh, with a sociologist of science actually from the University of Lausanne and um, Takashi said at one point, he goes, people don't really understand what's happening that in five years, science will so radically change because the machines are so fast, so much faster at, at a and way beyond kind of the technical determinism of Moore's law. What he was basically saying is, the machines now can solve scientific problems, for instance, you know, like, obviously like or let's say have a big step ahead in terms of things like protein folding and, and so on, that scientists have been working on for years and years and years and years. And he was said, people are not prepared for this. The future is already here. It's not in the future, it's now. And um, so I, I would I would say that the complexity will get more and more, um, and it will become more and more black box because it's getting so complex. Uh, it's entanglement, uh, and it's you know the sensors are not isolated. You know, in the 19th century, someone would go into the psychology lab, the University of Leipzig of Wilhelm Wundt, and you know they would check um, you know using a chymograph basically their heartbeat or something. But now all your heartbeats connected to a thousand other heartbeats, and then all of these machines are, you know, correlating that data and analyzing it and, in 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 real time. Oh. So I, I I think that the entanglement of machines and humans will get more and more extreme. Um, I don't think that machines will replace humans, especially how engineers design them now, because you can, you know that like smart cars are anything but smart cities are anything but. Um, so it, it, it demands, I think more, as I said, vigilance to understand that complexity. Um, so science is speeding ahead, uh, and technology is speeding ahead because, uh, now scale is, is, is less and less a problem. Um, and I guess as humans, uh, we have to understand what these machines do and how they're different than us, not basically how they will replace us.
1: Now, reflecting a little bit on the bigger picture, so how is important is it for us to have open conversation about these new technologies and ethics and biases as well that can, can go into programming all of these technologies?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's super important. Um, uh, at the same time, um, there's a bit of a problem, uh, I think, in in a lot of the arguments, particularly in in, in friends who are social scientists uh, working in critical AI or critical technology uh, work that all these systems are biased. You know, it's like like particular algorithms that are image recognition algorithms that rely on existing databases that do convolutional, you know, uh, filters. Those potentially have bias in them because those systems are, of course, looking at data sets that are controlled by large companies. So, of course, part of it is to... Be aware that, again, that's why I said sensors are cultural technologies. They are stamped by, by cultural ways of thinking, not by some kind of natural way of thinking. Sensors are anything but natural. You know, mm-hmm. This is what we learned from our friends in sociology of science. Um, I think the other thing is that, that yes, though, it's, it's extremely important to have these discussions. And In fact, I was talking today with two young um, Postdocs, one's a doctoral student, and the other from e- ETH here in Zurich, uh, and they're working in computational um, social science. You know, so so there. So one guy is doing research on um, you know agent-based models and running um, essentially like running game theoretical complex simulations essentially with many many agents, thousands and thousands of agents. And I said. I said, you know, and, and of course, looking at how these agents try to optimize their behavior. And you know, but human beings don't optimize everything. Human beings are sometimes irrational. Sometimes I'm waiting at the tram. Do I jump in front of the tram because I know the tram is waiting? I don't know when it's gonna go. Um, so I think, and they asked me to come talk in their in their seminar, you know, about like the ways the arts might teach us to think about complex systems, you know, or Complex questions about emergence, autonomy, uh, um, self-organization, and these kinds of things. So this this belief that, um, and this is important, I think, in education that that like, and and this is not just the sciences, the natural sciences, also the social sciences, also the humanities. They have become disciplines, right? They're boundaries. They have um, uh, they want to keep things out that don't belong to the methods of those disciplines technology like sensing like artificial intelligence like synthetic biology all of these are interdisciplines they cut across the social sciences the natural sciences the human sciences and the arts and design and so they all involve massive social political and cultural questions they are not simply scientific where you could just say well that's science and we hold back mm-hmm. you know um, the political framings of that and i mean of course i'm not to say that i mean and science of course is extremely politicized but Science has always been politicized. It doesn't mean that politics makes science, but it does mean that science operates in a social field. You know, so um, it's super important to have discussions with scientists and engineers to have them read stuff like my book. In fact, a lot of engineers are interested in this book, which is really funny. You know, um, uh, uh, because it, I, I, you know, as you asked about bias and ethics, um, we we have a very normative view of these concepts because we think that. We'll bring in the ethics after the technologies are already creating havoc. And I think the question we really want is doing, what do we need these things for? You know, If we can simply say, oh, they're just for capitalism to advance capitalism. Okay, well, at least that's honest, but no one says that. They say it's all in the name of progress. You know, mm-hmm. But of course, what these, what these technologies do is anything but progress in many ways because they ex- exacerbate inequities um, they exacerbate splits between gender, race, culture, um, and and there's just the assumption that well these are natural systems, but they are not. They are not natural s- systems. They are artificial systems. That's why they're called techno scientific systems and not natural scientific systems. So it's very very important not just to have these discussions among you know groups of of um, uh, you know, converted social scientists or artists, but really all these disciplines to talk to each other. And it's important, for instance, that funding structures happen that scientists can work with with these different disciplines, you know, and 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 understand that the concerns may be different in terms of methods in different disciplines. But in fact, um, these are these are monsters that have been let out the lab doors and we have to and they're they're in the society now. Uh, I mean, they're in the, the public eye. Um, and they have to be understood, grappled with, and um, critiqued so they can be used in, in, in ways that actually will benefit us rather than just benefit a handful of stockholders in five corporations based in uh, Silicon Valley or, or in Beijing.
1: And what discoveries in your research during writing your book, Sensing Machines, surprised you the most?
2: I think... I mean, first of all, of course, when you do, uh, let's say, kind of large-scale scoping, you know, scans of literature in a number of dis- disciplines. Uh, you start seeing like, wow, there's like really crazy projects going on <laughs> you know, from, you know, e-noses e- e- and e-tongues and, you know, artificial limbs and artificial sensors embedded in your stomach. And I mean, you know, and you go, oh, this is not science fiction. It's supposed real. So part of it was just scale of research, which is going on, which was, which is surprising. I couldn't know that intuitively, but when you suddenly look on, you know, on, on um, running literatures, scans on on big databases you start to see thousands and thousands of articles just on yeah. sensors in cars like how sensors talk to each other in cars for smart roads and things like that um i guess the other thing that that surprised me was the fact that i started when i started to write the book it was more about as i started the discussion you know earlier about um quantification of Perception, you know, and I wanted to write a kind of history, cultural history of psychophysics. And then I realized that, okay, that's maybe very too academic, you know, and my editor at MIT Press, Duxeri at the time, and he said, you know, write for the public because this is an important issue, you know. Uh, and, I, and I write in a way that's, I think, accessible, not like a lot of academics. So, so one of the things that surprised me was how to communicate a lot of complicated stuff. A lot of complicated science and and research in in ways that didn't dumb it down, but at the same time makes it accessible, so it does not seem like science fiction on the one hand, or you know, obscure research that doesn't bear any resemblance to people's everyday lives on the other. Um, I, so I I think that and 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 the other thing I would say is that this is the problem writing um, books about contemporary phenomena, you know, whether it's in the sciences, I mean, uh, or, or in the social sciences, in the arts, because things are changing so fast, but the publishing industry is very slow. So I started this book, I wrote the book in a year and a half, but the process with the proposal and the peer review and all of this, because it's MIT press it was a very famous press, um, you know, took five years. Oh, so wow. in, and, and, and so between edited, you know, different proofs companies had already disappeared that i was writing about the, the URLs didn't exist anymore you know the products didn't exist anymore um one site that was for some i don't know sleep device you know with a, with uh a, you know that 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 turned light on and sound to help you sleep and then measured how long you were sleeping um the company basically had turned into a health science company from from you know, over six months so you know, this is a real challenge of writing like a book in these times. And I still like writing books because it's like a real thing. It's not just a PDF somewhere, you know, or like the book, like basically like the the research was changing so fast that by the time, like six, three months after doing one proof, things had changed already. Um, So that's again, why maybe the history is really important because the history doesn't really change. I mean, you discover new things about it. But uh, meanwhile, you know, all of those companies, you know, in the so-called, there was the New York Times, like 2016 or 17, whatever, you know, the sleep space and the $25 billion sleep space, all those companies are gone now (laughs) that they talked about. So I think that was really surprising is the fact that, wow, things are really changing so fast and um, you can barely keep up with them.
1: Maybe you need some kind of preprint server for your books. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> or that's where we need the, you know, we need the machine learning models to <laughs> like detect what's what's closing and then rewrite it for you. you
1: know? <laughs> okay, so imagine that you were traveling in space somewhere, you know, just to colonize some planet, and you had a choice of any tech or any sensors to have on board of your ship. What would be your choices? You know, like basic ones or something fun. <laughs>
2: Wow. um, I guess the question is what would I want them for? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess you know, i I, I think uh, I, I would I would want the sensors that could like monitor. My stress level, which of course you need a lot of sensors. You don't just need one sensor to do that. And it's really kind of complicated. But that would monitor the stress level and then kind of like would adjust the adjust the environment into, you know, more party mood when I was bored. And (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So like, you know, to go from the mood ring to like the mood space, you know, I think that would be the best way to do it.
1: Yeah, sounds like a plan. Good. Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So, what are you up to now, and what will be your next project?
2: So, the next project is um, um, I'm starting uh, in, in this in this new lab here in in Zurich. Um, I'm starting to do a lot of thinking about in a similar way we've been talking about sensing about um, so-called extended reality. So, again. Uh, Virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality. Now, these technologies are starting to uh, move away from, let's say, closing you off in the world like virtual reality does, and like mixing the real world uh, into the into the simulated, the computationally generated one. And um, I find this really fascinating because, uh, as as you know, um, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg uh, in, in Meta announces the the development of the metaverse. Uh, Nobody knows what that thing is, um, but everyone wants it. And uh, Facebook spent 10 billion US dollars last year on technologies like aimed at creating this metaverse. Um, So I'm kind of interested in knowing like like using uh, tech techniques like speculative fiction design fiction and to prototype with with my team here. Like, what is this metaverse? Who's it for? Who's who's included in this metaverse? Is this like everybody? Or is this is it just like white, able-bodied people? Um, you know, what is this for? Who who needs this? So um, so I'm starting, starting to think, think about like what is social action and social interaction in you know, in a multi-sensory and inclusive way in this kind of new emerging space that's supposedly, as Silicon Valley insiders say, is gonna change interaction, human interaction as we know it. It's the same thing you've heard about artificial intelligence for a long time. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to do that. Um, and complementary to that, I have a huge project that's opening at the Kunstfest in Weimar, Germany uh, on 26th of August uh, called Animate, which is about climate change, um, Canadian climate fiction story that is actually within that stage with these um, new kinds of, let's say, extended reality technologies where the audience is both between the kind of in, simulated environment and, and, the, and, and real, real space. Um, so, so I'm 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 interested in uh, these critical uh, histories uh, around these belief in a kind of let's say technological sensorium sensorium, and which is what sensing machines also kind of contributes to, uh, and also you know being able to try out uh, and explore and prototype uh, in the present what these supposed futures might be.
1: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your book, your work, and perhaps to see whether there's any PhD positions open? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so the book is "Sensing Machines: How Sensors Shape Our Everyday Life." It's available. Uh, it's from MIT Press. It's available, of course, on Amazon. But of course, it's also available in in your local bookstore if you if you uh, if you want to order it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's people are picking it up from all sorts of different disciplines. Um, you can check out my work on, on Chris Salter, one my website. You can also do a search on Google for Chris Salter artists. You'll find thousands of things. You'll find also lots of talks and things I've given on, on a lot of different subjects, um, being kind of wearing the hats of artists and scholar and research director. Um, and, um, yeah i mean i think that's that and so so please yeah, buy the book uh, i think the book is is really people find it very entertaining uh it's 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 not in, it's not belabored in its arguments uh and it, it gives you a lot of information about things you might not know about so
1: well thank you so much for joining me today
2: thanks galina